Good morning. Uh, my name is Jamie. Uh, I realize there are many of you I don't know. Uh, a lot of you I do as well, but uh, I serve as a pastor and elder here at Harvest Church and have the joy of continuing our series in Ephesians this morning as we pick up in chapter 4, verse 13. Now, I'll tell you before we read that the starting point this week admittedly is a bit awkward. So this is one of the few times that uh, as we go through the book expositorily, we're actually picking up a new sermon in the middle of a previous thought. Right? So not the cleanest of break between the passage last week and this one. And so to help this week kind of get situated, contextually flow and make a little more sense, we're going to back up a little and kind of take a running start into 13 so that it's more appropriately situated. I think it'll help us understand it and hopefully put it into practice and obedience a little clearer. That said, if you're able, I do invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word, beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. I'll read down through 16. It says this, these are the very words of God, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. That's the word of God for the people of God. And God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do pause, <clears throat> acknowledging that this text, specifically this text this morning, uh, will necessarily intersect all of us. For the main thrust of this passage is maturity. And there's room for all of us to grow. And yet, what Paul means by maturity is a bit deeper than that. Uh, not simply normative Christian growth, uh, but the example of some uh, pretty gaping uh, errors in people's walk. And so on the front end, we ask that your spirit, uh, in ways that are accurate and true, would convict us. Where this applies, would you, by your grace, uh, forgive us? Uh, may we uh, result even a little bit more this morning, uh, turn out to be what the point of the passage says is to look more like Jesus as a people together. Uh, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So to really get what Paul is stating here in chapter 4, verse 13, back up quickly with me to the end of chapter 3. Now, uh, we've covered this a couple times, so you'll forgive me for the redundancy, but a 30,000-foot view considered, and, and admittedly maybe overly simplistic, Ephesians has a bit of a transition between the end of chapter 3 and beginning of chapter 4. And so the end of 3 is marked by this prayer. So Paul prays this at the end of 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul prays that at the end of what are these three chapters of rich, deep theology. Okay, so if you were to draw a diagram or to outline the book of Ephesians uh, in the most uh, a reductionistic way possible, you'd say the first three chapters primarily focused on what to believe. 
doctrine, right belief. At the end of three and into four, you draw a line and say, now four, five, and six is the right way to live. But the right way to live is informed by believing correctly. And so here Paul transitions, moving out of all these stated doctrines and theological beliefs, praise, kind of tidies that up, and then transitions to the pragmatics. And if you'll notice in 4, 5, and 6, Paul says, because of all this doctrine that I just gave you, let me show how it plays out. Chapter 4, inside the church. Chapter 5, in the family. And largely chapter 6, in the workplace. Again, that's overgeneralized, but it's true. So Paul says, this is theologically true. And yet... Don't be someone that looks in the mirror and forgets their reflection. Obey it. It does not matter what your head, what's packed in your head if it never transitions to the practical application of a transformed heart and changed life. So Paul says, now let me show you how it works. Because these first three chapters are true, your church should look like this. Chapter four. Because these first three chapters are true, your marriages should look like this. Chapter five. And because these first three chapters are true, your workplace dynamics should look like this, chapter 6. Okay, so Paul, making this transition, says in chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So there it is. I've told you what is true about God. Now live a life that matches up to this great calling. Well, what's the calling that he's talking about there? It's salvific. It's the calling all the way back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that we were lost, hopeless, without God, by nature, children of wrath. Chapter 2, verse 4, but God, rich in mercy, saved us. Chapter 1, verses 3, all the way through 14, you were predestined to be adopted as children of God. Paul says that is the great call, the call for a sinner to come alive. The call for the dead to walk, that God breathes life into us. We are resurrected. The old is gone. The new has come. Paul says that is a great calling. Now live a life that examples to all of the world that that resurrected life is true of you. Okay, so now he, again, is transitioning us to the practical application of the great gospel truths of the Bible. He says, I urge you. So what are ways you walk? Like this, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with one another. Maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. Now here's his main point of chapter four. He's going, unity where? In the church, right? Maintain the bond of peace for there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So now he tells us, hey, chapter four, he's really concerned with the unity of the church and the church being the primary number one arena in which all of these gospel truths are lived out. So what does he give the church to help us in this direction? Well, that's where Kenan was last week, verse 12. He gives us these things, right? Verse 8, he talks about spiritual gifts. Verse 12 or 11, he gives us apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. For what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. And now our verse, until. So we pick up and Paul says, do everything I've been instructed you in this direction for this time. For how long, Paul? Well, you do it 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that situates our verse. This is what he's called us to and we're to keep doing it until we all attain mature manhood in the person of Christ Jesus. This has the smell of Colossians, same message. Being of Colossians chapter 1, 28 and 29, for this we labor in toil that we would present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. Or you got anybody here that uh, thinks they're called to pastoral ministry? That's your goal, is to shepherd people towards not your preferences, not your mechanisms of control, but to maturity and to the person of Christ. And here Paul says we keep doing it and we keep doing it and we keep doing it until we're all there. Until we're all there. Now we'll focus on this a little bit later, but I want you to go ahead and make a note. If you're, maybe that's presumptuous of me. If you are taking notes. Most of you, it appears, are taking mental notes. Wonderful. Uh, note, there is going to be a decidedly corporate aspect to this. So if you leave this morning and your, uh, what you've approximated as the primary application is your own individual maturity, I've done a poor job. Now that's a component of it. But just know, and again, we'll look at it in a bit. Paul has a corporate view in mind. He says, we, all of us, together, having been given the gifts from God through his spirit, having been given the apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, says all that is working together with us all in this body so that we all grow to maturity. So are there individual implications of this text? Yes. Is individual implication, are those the primary application of the text? It's not. It's not. And you'll see that Paul is uh, focusing on us corporately this morning. So he says, until we attain this, unity of the faith. Now that idea of faith there uh, is not the idea of someone having faith in Jesus to believe. That's not what he means by the unity of, of the faith. He's talking about faith is the content of belief. He's saying, hey, church in Ephesus, because remember, he's writing into a context where false teachers are coming in. And some of the believers in this church in Ephesus are starting to dabble in these false teachings. Uh, they're tempting for them. They're starting to adopt some of them. Some of them are beginning to stray a bit. And so Paul is not saying that you're unified in the fact that you all believe in something, He's saying, no, unity of the faith is we're unified in the content of that belief. Well, Paul, what is the content we're supposed to be unified in? And he would say, did you read the first three chapters? Because that's it. That's why those first three chapters are so important. They unpack bedrock, foundational truths of what it means to be a Christian. It's apostolic in its teaching, set forth by the apostles. Jude, uh, uh, when we say chapter one, it's only got one chapter. So verse three in Jude says this, that we would contend for the faith that's been handed down once for all unto the saints. But what does he mean by that? He means stuff like this, that the apostles have handed to us. We don't have to get cute with it. 
We don't have to add to it. We don't explain it away. We don't have to soften it. We inherit it. And having inherited it, all Paul is calling us to is to stand firm in it. So we don't have to wonder what are we supposed to believe. He's given it to us. He's saying you got to get unified in that. That's why if you come into membership at Harvest Church, you come to Discover Harvest, you sit down with your uh, membership interview with an elder, hopefully you've been walked through our doctrinal statement. And as best we can as elders, we've held out and said, this is what we think we need to be unified in belief in at Harvest Church. Like to contend for that faith. One of the things I love, love about serving as an elder at this church is there's a diversity of opinion in our elder board on things like Calvinism, uh, end times, spiritual gifts. I love the diversity of theological thought in that room because it tells me this, what we're calling for unity in are the bedrock foundations of the Christian faith with some charity and flexibility in some of these other areas. I love that kind of environment. So Paul says unity in the content of what he's already laid forth with him. Then he says this, not just that, but specifically as it relates to the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, most of the time, especially in the first century, can you read in all but, I think it's one and maybe two, New Testament books reference false teachers? Almost every single false teaching relates to the person of Jesus. Okay, so that's why he inserts that so emphatically here. Is you got to know that you know that you know what the Bible says about Jesus. And to be growing in it. Not just being content with being able to, to rattle off, yeah, Jesus, Son of God, I died on the cross for my sins. God raised him from the dead. Fantastic to believe that with all of your heart. You have to to be a Christian. But what if we pressed a little bit more? What if, what if we pressed in and said, hey, why did Jesus have to be truly human and truly God? Could you answer that? If someone at your workplace would say, hey, why, what's this deal about Jesus? Why was he born a virgin? Why is that important? Could you answer that? Okay, knowledge of the Son of God. Right, if you're looking for something to study, going, I don't know where to begin. If you're looking for an arena to expand your knowledge of who God is, start with the person of Jesus. And go deep into it. Right, the author of Hebrews gets frustrated with his people when he says, and this is me paraphrasing, right? He says, why do I keep having to teach you the same elementary things about Jesus over and over and over and over again? He says, hey, it's time. You got to be able to go a little bit deeper. Learn a little bit more. Grow in your knowledge of the Son of God, that Christ came, died, was buried, and resurrected. That's the starting place for salvation for us. But that's not where we stop in learning about him. How did he live? What did he teach? How did he interact with enemies? How did he interact with people he disagreed with? How did he command us to live? What is the incarnation? We're about to go through a whole month of celebrating it. Can you explain it to someone? Do you know why it's important 
that God takes on flesh. So Paul says, hey, if we don't grow in our knowledge, specifically the person of Jesus, immaturity is guaranteed to be the result. Okay, so it's unity of the faith. Knowledge of the Son of God. And then he says this, uh, uh, so that we grow into this idea of mature manhood. Now, that could more uh, literally be, be rendered into a full-grown man. Now, that's important. Because Paul just told us that corporately, all of us are aimed in the same direction. And that direction is a person. But not just any person. That person is Jesus Christ. So Paul says, here's what Christian maturity looks like. It's when corporately, a church is all trying to become like the same person. That person is Jesus. He says, that's maturity. That's what we're growing up into. If our focus is anywhere else, if we're trying to grow into this uh, perfect public image of what a Christian should be, if we're trying to grow into the image of one another, if we're trying to go grow into the image of a political platform, whatever it is, Paul says that will not render a unified and mature church. He says we are aimed at a singular man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. That's the goal. That's where all of our sights have to be set if we're going to be a mature and unified church. Now, if we don't, so if 13 doesn't become true of us, 14 will. Okay, so if 13 doesn't become true, 14 will. Here's what he says in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, so notice in verse 13, maturity is related to a singular male, the person of Jesus. In 14, when he talks about immaturity, he uses a plural term, children. So let's just start there. The quickest way for a church to stunt its growth into Christ-likeness is to view Harvest Church as 1,300 individual expressions of faith. Paul says that will lead to immaturity. In fact, the immaturity running rampant in the church at Ephesus is partly the result is that everybody views themselves as their own individualistic expression of what it means to know and love Jesus. It's highly, highly individualized. And that's tough for us, especially as Americans, because we live in a Western individualistic culture. It's all about me, my preferences, my wants, my desires. This is why, if we let it, church is such a wonderful place because we have to die to that when we come through these doors. So Paul says, if you want to know a church is actually uh, in growing in maturity, when you go in, they will be unified with one another, seeing each other as gifts to one another to push us towards Christ's likeness. So if you want to know a church is immature, you go in and they're fractured all over the place. 
Here's this camp that wants this. Here's this camp that's mad about this. Here's this camp that wants this music. This camp wants this music. This camp's mad about this preaching. This camp's mad about this sermon. The pastor doesn't talk enough about politics. Pastor talks too much about politics. Pastor talks, he says, Paul would walk in and say, immature. He'd say, immature. So you've got a hundred different things and complaints going on about all these other things. Why? Because it bothers you personally. Paul says, it's immature in a church. So if you want to know a church is mature, they lay aside individualistic preferences. And they're all focused on how do we become like Jesus? And how do we do it together? So we're growing in a mature manhood or else we stay as little children. Now the point there is intuitive for a lot of us. And Paul is drawing this analogy. Uh, uh, he, he's trying to say just like physically, developmentally, there are some things about children that if we were to see them in adults, we would know intuitively, okay, that man or that woman, we would call them very immature. We'd call them childish. Saying, well, the same thing can be true of a church. Saying as a church grows in age and together, that at a certain point you should be able to look at it and say, oh my goodness, they're still struggling with these things? Immature. Childish. Okay, so what are, this is actually when the sermon prep was, was fun this week, just thinking about kids and some things that when kids do it, we say, well, yeah, I mean, they're a child, they're growing, they shouldn't do it, they gotta grow, they gotta mature. We use this type of language all the time, right? So what's one of them? Well, well, you could do this list, you'll do a better list than me, right? But at the top of that list, when I was just thinking about it, is you have immediate versus delayed gratification. See, all the times with kids, don't you? I mean, if I go back in that kid's ministry right now and offer a three-year-old one of those bank lollipops, right, or like a $100 gift card to Denstall's, they're going to take that cheap sucker from the bank teller every single time. Why? It's right in front of them. It's immediately accessible. It will taste good really quickly. When adults do that, we should be going, and that's immature. Every two weeks you get your paycheck and you immediately go out and you blow it all, we would go, immature. No concept of delayed gratification, something greater to come, versus the immediate indulgence of your flesh. So when kids do it, we go, okay, it's part of their maturity process. When adults do it, we say, there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that. Well, what else? What about this? <laughs> what about this? How about emotional outburst versus staying poised? Right now, if you've been around kids, especially younger ones, they respond emotionally to pretty much everything. And there is no filter on that emotional response. It is full on. You know exactly where they stand. Now, if you go out to eat with a peer or coworker, spouse, whatever it is, and you were to reach across the table and take a bite of their cheesecake, and they grabbed their fork and threw it at you and started screaming and crying, You'd call a psychologist. 
Why? Childish behavior in an adult lets us know something is wrong. It lets us know something is wrong. Well, what about this? How about talking versus listening? Because kids love to talk, love to talk. It's really hard for them to sit and listen. Shannon and I have to tell our kids all the time. One will be talking, one will just butt in and start interrupting them. So we say, hey, acknowledge your sister, acknowledge your brother, listen to what they're saying. Hey, answer their questions. Why? Kids love to talk. They don't like to listen. We see that in adults as well. And when we do, we should say it's immature. It's immature. I got a couple more. This was fun. You don't have to just indulge me for a minute, all right? What about this one? Kids are really quick to believe almost anything with very little thoughtful processing. Now, this is going to start to move us towards the real crux of what Paul's getting to with buying into these false doctrines in the church at Ephesus. Kids are the picture of what it means to be tossed back and forth by the winds of any story, any idea. Talk them almost into anything. They'll believe you. About thoughtful, conscious processing of what's going on. So when an adult does that, we say what? They're really gullible. They're really rash. They are immature because they don't pause and actually thoughtfully think through okay what's going on how should I respond you know this is the person right when and maybe this is you and at times it's tempted to be me but you get that email and you immediately fire off a response and you should have really adopted a 24-hour policy and go when you get something that frustrates you just sit with it sit with it but if you're always the fire back guy or fire back lady, it's immaturity. It's immaturity. It's childishness and childlike. Okay, so we see just in the example of children that immaturity is exampled both by what we do and what we believe. Well, we believe. So what do I mean by that? And that's going to be one of Paul's main points this morning is you can tell someone's maturity level, especially as a Christian, by what they believe. Okay, now, a couple disclaimers. In a room this size, let's acknowledge something. There's some of you here today, you are not convinced of the truthfulness of Christianity. Just add my word of welcome. So glad you're here. My hope is that the Spirit disrupts you and brings you to faith. Right? And the fact that you're here means he's already after you. So good luck with that battle. Secondly, secondly, in this room, there are going to be plenty of us that are immature as it comes to our knowledge of God's word. Okay, now that's not something for you to just wallow in shame about this morning. It's just simply something for you to curb and correct, to grow in it, to launch in, to study it. Okay, now there's some of you in here that when Paul is saying immaturity, he's actually not talking about you. Now, everybody in here has room to grow. That's going to be true of us till the day that we die. When he says immature here, he's saying you don't even have the, 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 the right foundation. There are a lot of you in here that you've got the right foundation. We just got to keep growing. 
and the knowledge and grace of the Lord. Paul here is getting at these foundational bedrock things about what we believe. And you can see a lot of times someone's maturity or immaturity based off the simple principles of what the Bible say who God is. Okay, so immaturity example in what, how we live, we already went through that, and what we believe. Again, tied to children. An example, my three-year-old daughter on a nightly basis, almost nightly basis, asked me this question. Here's your night. Daddy, are there monsters? I'm sitting there going, oh my word. I just answered this last night, the night before, the night before, the night before. No, Kyle, there are not monsters. Now, she's three, so okay. If she still asks me that same question at 16, we got a maturity problem. You should grow, and your knowledge of things should change. And as your knowledge of things change, it should change how you live. It's Christian growth. Now, if my boys were to come to me and say, there's a monster in my room, I'd say, well, go kick it in the knee and go to bed. Uh, okay, so what we believe, what we believe, immaturity. So a lot of that you're going to see, maybe in yourself, maybe in others. So take someone's belief about God. If we are here this morning and you believe that God's primary purpose is centered on your happiness. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just telling you, A, it's not biblically true, and you need to mature in your thoughts about God. God is not primarily consumed with your own individual happiness. He is consumed with his glory. And the more we pursue his glory, it's to our good, even if it doesn't always make us happy. That's a more mature view of the person of God. If you're here this morning and you believe that God owes you an explanation for everything that happens in your life, especially the hard stuff, I understand the desire to want that, but to demand it and to not worship him if he doesn't give it to you is an immature response. Understandable, but it's not mature in how God presents our responses to God. And... As it relates to the knowledge of the Son of God, if your view is that Jesus is just kind of your buddy, that's just my buddy Jesus, or he's kind of the mascot of my life, just kind of cheering me on a little bit, I'd say this. You have an immature view. You don't have an awe-inspiring, bended knee and worship view of God coming in the flesh. I still remember the first time, and I know, I know this young lady was well-intentioned. And I also know that I was not very kind and, and gentle. So I'm being down the front end. I remember the f- years ago when I was directing Emerging Leaders a program for Downline Ministry. It was in February, and a sweet, well-intentioned young lady told me that Jesus was her valentine. And in all my gentleness, I said, no, he is not. Now, I know what she meant by it. But I resist any of this idea of Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my valentine. God is my buddy type of thing. Do you know why? You don't worship your buddy. You won't worship your homeboy. And your valentine is only there to try to make you happy and feel good. You need to grow into an awe-inspiring view 
and worship rendering view of the Son of God. Okay, so immaturity exampled both by what we do and by what we act. I wonder, I wonder, and this may, I kind of woke up in a bad mood, which made me feel really bad for y'all. And I did try to pray through it. And it had nothing to do with y'all. You know, sometimes you just have those mornings. But just thinking about this idea of maturity and immaturity, I just wonder, like at what point as adults do we move away from our junior high tendencies of cliques and Christian cliches and just actually step into deep Christian faith where strangers are welcomed in, where those we don't know are brought near, where those we disagree with genuinely become our friends, when those we pronounce as our enemy become the objects of our love, when we're really hurting, we don't just cover it with, well, hey, God is good. God is good. He is good. But you're hurting. Let's acknowledge that because you know what else he can do? He can heal you. So I just kind of woke up this morning and wanted to come in here and just give a big locker room speech of, come on. Like, what have we been doing for the last year and a half arguing about all this nonsense? We are aimed at becoming like Jesus. What we believe and how we act will tell us if as a body we are actually getting there. Now here's the result of staying like a child. Look at it. We'll be tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. That idea of craftiness by Paul is the same way that the serpent is described in Genesis chapter 3. So just know anything that tears a church apart is from the enemy. All of it. Even if it looks like it's from a person. Go to 1 John. There's always a person behind the person. The spiritual forces. Right, so craftiness and deceit. If you go to Genesis 3 and saw how the serpent came, that idea of serpent in Hebrew is shining. Just know false doctrine is always appealing. Just like the serpent was appealing to Eve. It wasn't some just rat nasty snake. It looked good to her. She was drawn to it. That's what's so deceptive about false teaching. There are actually components of it that look sort of true. And there's an alternative thing that appeals to our flesh and desires. Paul says, be careful. Be careful with it. He says, the immature person is tossed back and forth, back and forth. And everything that comes out, now they believe this, now they think this, now they're reading this book, now they're reading this book. Now it's this, this constant instability of what you believe. And by the way, the biggest false prophets of our day, uh, a lot of them aren't in the pulpits. They're in the entertainment industry. I will, Lolita, thank you. And the entertainment industry has captured our hearts. And we don't even realize it's happening sometimes. If you put, look, here's what I've noticed. I'm totally off now. But you're here and it's raining, so buckle up. Uh, I've noticed this. 
if you put sin to a tune, I will almost always sing along. I was, I was watching a, uh, just a clip, YouTube clip last night of the recent interview with Adele and Oprah. Can you all see that? And Adele, from the biggest cultural pop icons of our day, does an entire interview about how her new album essentially is the justification of her divorce. And I couldn't believe, look, I'm not here, don't email me, I'm not condemning Adele, all right, whatever. I'm not even saying don't listen to Adele. I know just, it's not the point. Listen, here's what she said, all right? Now I'm gonna misphrase it a little bit, but generally what she said is, she said, I had to realize that I was making a selfish decision for my own happiness that was going to wreck my eight-year-old's life. And as she told the story of pursuing her own happiness, Oprah responds with, what a great message for people today. Do you understand that that's false doctrine by false prophets? Oprah and Adele, who have captured the hearts of plenty of Christians. Do you recognize it? And I know a lot of us don't because when we do marriage counseling, you know the primary issue, the primary issue of my own marriage is I actually believe it's about my own individualistic happiness. And here's Adele, she's setting you free from the burden of a lifelong covenant commitment to someone, thick or thin, heaven or hell, sickness or poor. She says, oh, don't toss that out. It's all about you. And when it doesn't meet your demands and expectations, just throw it away and go get a new one. Now, some of you are tempted to believe that. And it's skillfully and craftfully being woven into your life by the enemy as we speak. Paul says, better be careful. Because if you're not mature in your view of something like marriage, you're going to get tossed around like the wind. Okay, so false prophets, they got to move on. Come to us in plenty, plenty of different ways. So here's how you say you combat it. All right, here's how you combat it. Verse 15, rather, so here's how we should act. Don't be like verse 14, because here's this progression. You, you want to look like 13. If you don't, 14 happens. If you want to do the opposite of 14, do verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ. Okay, now speaking truth in love is not a license to be a jerk. Hear me on that. And so many of us misapply this. I've even done it at times. Right, go back. Listen, can I just tell you something? You are an idiot. Can I say it? You're an idiot. And I just want to speak the truth in love. I'm speaking the truth in love. Okay, that's not what he's saying here. It's contextually juxtaposed against the false teachers. He says, hey, the false teachers don't love you. You know how I know they don't love you? They're lying to you. He says, how do you get after that? Get, it, get out from under that, he says, be honest. Be honest. Graciously honest. Paul says, 
That's how you know, church at Ephesus, that I love you is I will tell you the truth, not just what you want to hear. So that's speaking the truth in love. It's to combat the false prophets because they lie and deceive. Paul says that's not loving. That's not loving. We rather speak the truth in love so that we can grow up. Verse 16, last verse. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in to love. Just make a note on this. That the body of Christ is not shapeless. Okay, that's why Harvest Church can't be the collection of 1,300 individuals trying to express themselves. Because that has no shape, no form. That's 1,300 different allegiances and different ideas all going in different directions. Paul says the church has a shape. It's held by ligaments. What do ligaments do? They hold things together. Right, so when you, when you tear a ligament, that joint has been torn in a way it wasn't supposed to be torn. It's lost shape. So he says, he says, harvest. Right, let's move it into to 2021. Harvest. If you're all pulling in different directions, guess what? The ligaments get stretched. They get torn. If your DCs are all pulling in different directions, maybe some ligaments have gotten stretched. It's gotten torn. Whatever the application is, the point is this. We're supposed to have a shape. We're actually supposed to look like something. And that something is a someone. So if we're going to be mature, we all have to have the same goal. And that's that all of us look like Jesus. We get there through the gifts God's given us. Through the leaders God gives to a church. And through the gift of one another. All being aimed in the same direction. If we don't do it, we'll be little children tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine. And just like if you look at an adult, look at an adult, and they're acting like a child, we say immature. The older we get as a church... If some of these things are still true of us, then we should look at ourselves and say, still immature. But we don't want to be that way. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the reality that your word calls us to maturity. So I'll confess, there are plenty of ways in which I shall act like a child. I can get defensive, far too easily angered. I believe I got the best idea in any room I go into. So why listen? I could just talk at the beginning of the meeting. It'd be a five-minute meeting. Everyone else will be blessed, Lord, and let's get out of here. Childishness. And so, God, this morning, in the kindness of your spirit, for those that don't know you, in the mercy of Christ, would you lead them to repentance? Knowing that Jesus really did come. He really did die. We're about to celebrate that. He really did raise from the dead. For the immature, would you show us where we really are not grasping these basic things that we can repent and grow? We ask this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.